Welcome to the New Books Network. The statement, we live in a secular age, is open to the obvious challenge that in some parts of the world, religion is a growing force in society. And even in places such as the United States, religious activists seem to have growing influence. As the recent US Supreme Court decision about abortion suggests, so is this a secular age? Well, Ryan Cragen is co-author of Beyond Doubt, The Secularisation of Society, and he joins me now. So welcome to you. Thank you so much for having me. And let's just start with the very sort of broad brush history of this. When did people first think that the influence of religion was declining? When did that become a common thought? Well, it depends on how far back we want to go. So uh, worth noting right out of the get, uh, out of the gate that there have basically always been non-believers, right? As far back as history goes, there have been non-believers. But if we're looking at kind of modern period, uh, the first scholars to suggest this were actually writing in the 1800s. So in the 19th century, suggesting that religion was going to be, continue to decline. Now we get a couple of scholars, Guyot and Comte, uh, French scholars in the late 1800s, basically saying by in the next 50 years, religion will be gone. They were wrong. But we did have a series of scholars throughout the late 19th century and early 20th century who were prognosticating that religion was on the decline and it was basically just going to disappear. So it's been around for a while. Yeah. And and then there was something of a sort of counter pushback against this in the, let's say, 1980s. So this idea had been prevalent for, what, 150 years. And then there was some pushback. Yeah. And that pushback is largely it, it revolves around kind of the strange status of the United States, which has changed in the last 20, 30 years. And that's why we wrote the book. But basically, you had scholars in the US, sociologists, who were pointing out that, yeah, religion appeared to be declining. It was you know, secularization was occurring in most of the Western world. So highly developed Western countries, Western Europe in particular was the, was the kind of typical example. But you can also point to Australia and Japan and New Zealand and a bunch of other countries. But the US seemed to be an outlier. It was the most religious country out of all the developed countries. So these scholars starting in the 70s, but really took off in the 80s and 90s, suggested that secularization as a theory, as a theoretical approach to understanding what's happening with religion, was defunct because the U.S. was the exception. Yeah. And outside of the States, people used to look at it and think, well, it's because of the U.S. origins. You know, it was founded as a result of religious persecution in Britain to a large extent. So I like to point out that the very first Europeans who came to uh, what is now in North America, they didn't actually come on the basis of religious persecution. They came pursuing financial gain, right? You get the Puritans later, but the very first, uh, you know, pilgrims, the people who come over on the Mayflower, they weren't actually fleeing religious persecution. They were here to make money. And I think that's actually a better representation of uh, U.S. national culture than this kind of puritanical notion. But uh, to, to that point, what really probably has led the U.S. to be different is actually the Cold War. So it's a relatively recent thing that happened, not some historical 400-year-old kind of founding of the U.S. It's actually because if you look at the late 1800s, we actually had a golden period of agnosticism and atheism in the U.S., where one of the most famous speakers, an orator who traveled around the country, was an agnostic, right? Uh, Robert Ingersoll. So we've had these periods kind of wax and wane, but it was when we entered into the Cold War against the godless communists 
that the U.S. actually constructed itself as opposition to that by saying that we are God-fearing Democrats. It's a very interesting claim. So is there any evidence that you can sort of show us the mechanism by which that happened in the Cold War? Uh, so, yeah. So you actually see the federal government, right? Uh, a lot of people don't realize this, but it was in the 1950s. So beginning of the Cold War, when we actually inserted under God into our Pledge of Allegiance. It was not there before the 1950s. Uh, it was also in the 1950s that we added In God We Trust as the national motto that went on to all of our currency. Before that, it was E Pluribus Unum, United We Stand, right? So we actually made these very intentional shifts, and that came from the federal level and kind of filtered out throughout the entire country. We also have the McCarthy era, right, where we have the Red Scare, and people who lived through that period who were atheists, they have gone on record saying, if you admitted to being an atheist throughout the um, Cold War, the very next question that you would get is, are you also a communist? That, of course, has ended, right? So the Cold War has arguably ended. We're into all sorts of weird conflicts now. But, but with the end of the Cold War, we actually see the uptick in non-religion in the US starting in 1990. So it's pretty telling because that's exactly when it ended. Yeah. And... and there is this idea amongst those who argue that religion uh, could have an even greater role in society in the future and is, is not really declining, that uh, the problem is what's being offered by the churches, particularly those that are too close to the state, right? So this comes out of the arguments of the, the critics of secularization. This is really kind of Rodney Stark and some of his colleagues in the 1980s, where they were critical, very critical of state churches, particularly Scandinavian ones. The established Church of England is a little bit more complicated, right? So it's kind of in a little bit of a gray area. But the argument that they were making is the clergy in those state churches had no real incentive to innovate and to try and grow their congregations because they got paid whether people showed up or not. And they were trying to contrast that with the U.S., where in the U.S. we don't have an established church. So the religions, in effect, compete kind of like a free market. And as a result, we've gotten mega churches with you know huge jumbotron screens and very exciting music. And their argument was that that's actually helping religion to thrive in the United States. They were wrong, but but it sounded good at the time. They're wrong because, in fact, the numbers are declining. Yes, absolutely. The only religions that seem to be doing okay in the U.S. in terms of like not losing massive amounts of people are the megachurches, and it's because the megachurches are drawing all the people who are leaving your kind of more traditional standard churches, your local Baptist church, your local Presbyterian church. So megachurches are, are doing okay, but every other denomination in the U.S. is losing members, and megachurches are just non-denominational. So yeah, it's, it's decline across the board. Right. So you don't believe the claim which some people make that demand for religiosity, as it were, is constant? Absolutely not. We, I mean, it's kind of shocking that people actually made that claim since, again, we've known that there have been atheists for the entire history of humanity. There have been people who just don't believe. But we can, I mean, you can look at any other developed country around the world, now including the U.S., and just look to see what's happening with demand. We have some countries where the majority of people are not religious and have zero interest in religion. The countries aren't falling apart. They're not collapsing. There are no dire consequences from this. Basically, there is not an innate tendency to be religious. It just doesn't exist. It's not there, despite what some people have claimed. Well, let's just before we sort of challenge that, get into some definitions. So what do you, what do you how do you define religion? 
we tend to, in, in the book, we, we tend to be very specific that it has to involve something related to supernature, right? So above and beyond nature, it's outside the domain of what we can sense or measure. And it usually involves two components, right? So it's collective beliefs, meaning it can't just be one person. If one person says they're Jesus, we think they're crazy. But if it's a whole bunch of people who think somebody's Jesus, now you have a religion. The other component that we do add in this book, I don't always do this, is ritual. So there has to be some component of ritual, or it could be a little bit of both. Um, but that definition of like collective beliefs and rituals related to the supernatural generally covers the vast majority of what most people would think of as religion. And when you talk about secularization in the book, you're, you're talking about the amount of religiosity in society declining, but also its power declining, you know, its connection to institutions and the state. Correct. Yeah. So we go a little bit beyond just saying that, you know, people are a little bit less religious and argue based on other scholars research. So this is based on the work of Mark Chaves and others, that it's not just that people are less likely to go to church or less likely to believe in God. It's also that the power and influence and authority of religion is declining. And you can see this, for instance, with like Catholics in the U.S., the vast majority of Catholics either use birth control or are perfectly in favor of it. The vast majority are in favor of priests getting married. And those are both positions that the Catholic Church is holding the line on and saying that this is not going to happen. So let's just get some uh, data on all this now then. Uh, can you tell us what numbers you've got that uh, back up what you're saying? So in the book, we draw on data from over 100 countries around the world. There are now pretty good, very reliable and publicly accessible data sets that have um, been basically asking fairly consistent questions since the 1980s. Um, there's the World Value Survey, the European Social Survey. There are a variety of different surveys. So we aggregate all of that data and basically look from the 1980s, whenever we have waves of data to do this, all the way up through the current period. And then we're looking to see, particularly on three different measures of religiosity. So there's attendance, how frequently do you attend religious services, uh, whether you believe in God. And then the last one is whether you self-identify as having a, a religious affiliation. So we look at all three of those different measures because people can be religious or not religious in different ways in all of these countries around the world. And what we see is for countries that meet very specific criteria. They are developed or developing countries and they have freedom from or of religion. We're seeing religious decline in almost every single one of those. And it's on those three measures that we see the decline. So there are some places though where religiosity is increasing, aren't there? There are a handful of places where that is the case, yeah. Talk us through that. Where are they and why? Yeah, so the, the most common kind of example of an exception, that's the term that is often used, exception to secularization, are former Soviet bloc countries, so kind of Eastern European countries, former Soviet bloc countries. And they're, it's actually really complicated. So you tell me how deep you want me to go into this, but they are generally the exception to secularization. Nowhere else do we actually see religion on the rise for the most part. There might be one other exception, but almost all the other countries, it's either holding steady or on the decline. Yes, please. So get, you tell me how deep, how yeah, deep yes, you want yeah, to Yeah, no, I'd like to get more complicated than that. So what's happening in, I don't know, the Baltic states or, mm -hmm. um, well, in Russia? Uh, yeah. What, 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 are there differences across the former Soviet bloc? There are actually, there are some. So Estonia has actually just continued its trajectory towards secularization. It's one of the most secular countries on the planet today. Hungary as well, though there's been a little bit of a reversal recently. Uh, the one that we use in the book is Russia, in part because we just have the best data on that. 
what is argued to have happened, right? So a lot of people have this belief that during the Soviet era, the communist governments went in and just utterly destroyed religion. And as a result, everybody in the country became kind of militant atheists. Now, the first part is largely true, not in all of the countries, right? So they didn't do that in Lithuania or Poland, but they did that certainly in the Soviet Union. They went through and literally blew up churches. They burned down churches. They destroyed it went from tens of thousands of churches uh, before the Soviet area down to just hundreds, literally hundreds of um, Russian Orthodox churches. So they they very intentionally, the communist governments went in and, and destroyed the provision of religion, so supply, okay? But what a lot of people don't realize is that most of the people in those countries remained very devout, right? They believed, they just couldn't be open about it because being open about it meant that there were consequences. So uh, you actually find there was a, a census that was done in the Soviet Union just after they destroyed a bunch of the churches and the communist leaders were like, oh yeah, we've succeeded, right? We destroyed supply. So they run out the census and they're trying to get a sense of how many people still identify as religious. And it is the vast majority of Russians are like, oh yeah, I'm Russian Orthodox. So then they stopped asking about the question, right? They just stopped asking because, you know, this is how communist governments work. If we don't like the answer, we're just going to pretend that it's not real. But in fact, most Russians remained relatively religious throughout that entire time period. So when the Soviet era ends, uh, a lot of people are like, oh, there's this big uptick in religiosity. People are far more religious. No, the religiosity never fully declined to the point that everybody was atheists or non-believers. They just couldn't admit it. There has been, and I will kind of you know fully accept this, there's been an uptick in people identifying as religious. There has not been an uptick in people going to religious services. That hasn't changed at all from the Soviet era to the current era. And there doesn't appear to be much of an uptick in belief either. It's just identification. And what we argue in the book is a lot of that has to do with fascist and authoritarian regimes that turn to religion to justify the power structure of the government. So that's certainly happened in the Soviet Union, uh, sorry, in Russia, uh, that Putin has turned to the Russian Orthodox Church to get validation for all of his policies. So there's now a closer alignment between the Russian government and the Russian Orthodox Church than there has been in probably the last 80 years. Yeah, that's an interesting uh, point, because it's the same, maybe true of Hungary, which you briefly mentioned, that, that there's a exactly. connection between nationalism and, and religion, but not maybe religious observance. Exactly. Yeah, it's identification. We're seeing that in the US as well. So there's recent data suggesting that people become Republicans, they align themselves with kind of the far right wing of the Republican Party, then they begin to realize, oh, if I'm a Republican, I also have to be Christian. So they're not actually Christians before they become Republicans, then they become Republicans and then identify as Christian, because that's what it means to be a good Republican. And that story you just described uh, for the Soviet Union, is, is that much the same true for China? China's complicated, and it, it's something that we don't dig into all that deeply in the book, in part because the, the survey data from China are a little bit suspect. I think there's some new data coming out that Pew is going to be reporting on here anytime soon, um, but the, the numbers are a little tricky. So the situation in China is different because the Chinese government, since its inception, never said we're going to destroy religion. They just said we're going to highly regulate religion. So they took a different approach from what the communist government in, in the Soviet Union did, which was we're going to destroy it. In China, they said, OK, we're going to allow these five religions 
And if you want to be part of those religions, that's okay, but you can't be a member of the Communist Party if you're going to do that. Um, but we're going to just he heavily regulate this. So only in China do they get to uh, determine who Catholic bishops and priests are going to be, right? So the government actually determines that, not the Vatican. So they, they highly regulate it, but they allow it. And what we think is probably happening as a result is as China modernizes, the demand for religion is going to decline like it has in most other places around the world. So they're probably going to pass through this window where you'll still have this small percentage of people who are religious in China, but demand is going to plummet for everybody else. And you know, if, if at some point in the future they do get freedom of or from religion in China, which is tricky right now, we don't think that there's going to be a huge outpouring kind of desire for other religions. It's just not going to happen. Now, you talk about, you've got a phrase, cultural religion, and use it in relation to the Nordic countries. What, what's cultural religion? What we find in the Nordic countries, and the, you can see this, of course, in the book, in the maps, on attendance and belief, they're really, really low. They're some of the most secular countries on the planet. So their their levels of religiosity on those two dimensions are very low, but many of them are still likely to identify as being affiliated with the state church or formerly state church, right? So some of them have just recently kind of separated the state church. So what we argue there, and this used to be the case in the UK, the UK is getting a little bit different now, but is that people identify the church as being part of being a citizen of the country. So it's a cultural thing, right? That you say, oh, well, I'm Norwegian. I must be Lutheran, right? That's just, that's, that's what it means to be Norwegian. People used to do this in the UK. They'd say, oh, I don't believe in Jesus, but I'm Christian because I'm British. That's what we mean by cultural religion, right? So when it's part of the cultural identity to say, oh, well, because we're part of this culture, because we're part of this country, we have to identify with the religion. That's starting to wane a, a fair amount, but it still exists in some of these countries. Uh, now then, I, I didn't see much in the book about Africa, which would seem to be a very interesting place for, for you know, in, in the context of this conversation, for you know, a lot of evangelicals, a lot of traditional religious practice. What can you tell us about the trends? It's tricky because we don't have data on even the majority of countries in Africa. So because we're missing so much data, we don't spend a lot of time there. Listeners obviously need to keep in mind the two criteria that we give for whether a country is going to secularize, right? So you have to have freedom of or from religion. People have to be able to make those decisions. And then the second one is you have to be developing or developed. You have to be a highly developed country or, you know, close to that. Africa is without doubt, one of the least developed parts of the world. And as a result, we don't see the same levels of secularization in Africa as we do in other places around the world. So even in, say, South America, we're seeing pretty rapid development, particularly in places like Chile, Uruguay, which has been secular for a long time. Even Brazil, we're starting to see trends away from religion. But that's because the development is more rapid than we're seeing in Africa. So there are pockets in Africa where there is this kind of modernization happening, but in large parts of Africa, it's not it's not as developed and as a result we wouldn't expect the same level of secularization yeah it's, so it'd be interesting to get a bit on people's personal experiences in relation to all of this uh, and i guess the first point is that as you've acknowledged religion is more enduring than some of those 19th century writers thought and it suggests that you know religion fulfills a function for people you know for those who believe what is that function why is it so enduring why is it so powerful there are lots of ideas on that. I'll, I'll mention a couple 
coming from a, a variety of different scholars. So there's one uh, that we mention in the book because we, we actually do support this. We think it's pretty good. Um, <clears throat> Pippa Norris and Ronald Englehart made the argument in a 2002 book, I think I'm getting the date right, Sacred and Secular, that one of the best predictors of secularization is what they call existential security. So this is now referred to as the existential security hypothesis. And the idea is if you have all of your human needs met, right? So if you've got food and you've got water and you've got housing and you've got basic security and education, so like all of your needs are met through whether it's your own efforts or through a social safety net in a country that has a well-developed social safety net, you don't turn to the divine to get that same level of security. So it's in the countries that are less developed where they don't have that existential security that they're more likely to turn to the divine. So one of the functions of religion appears to be providing people a sense of security when that sense of security is actually lacking. And that uh, is a pretty robust argument. They show pretty compellingly that that is the case. So you can actually look, obviously, in countries around the world and see this, but even within countries like the U.S., some country, uh, some states in the U.S., have uh, better social safety nets than others, and those states tend to be less religious than the states that don't have a well-developed social safety net. So you can actually see it within countries too. So that's one of the functions that we do see with religion is providing the sense of security. There is a, another argument called the compensation hypothesis, which is kind of similar. This comes out of the work of Land and Schnabel, but it's actually very similar to the idea that Karl Marx, I mean, it is the, the idea that Karl Marx proposed, you know, over 150 years ago, that religion is the opiate of the masses, basically. When your life is difficult, right, religion provides you comfort and support. So it's similar to the existential security, but in this sense, they're basically saying it compensates for shit that happens in your life, right? When, when things are down and hard, you turn to a belief in the afterlife as like, there will be a better time. We see both of those as basically functions of religion. That's not to say that those are the only functions of religion. There may be many, many more. Religion is really good at adapting to human needs, but those are two pretty popular ideas. I mean, another aspect of whether people believe or not must presumably be what their parents believed. That, is, is that the, the, the biggest indicator of what Absolutely. it is, is it? Oh, yeah. So the single best indicator of whether or not somebody's religious is whether their parents were religious. Interestingly, that's, that's changing. As parents grant their kids more autonomy in making life decisions, we see more and more kids opt not to go to church and not to be involved with religion. So there is kind of an autonomy component, but it, we call this kind of like a generational gap or differences in generations or cohorts across time. But yeah, the single best indicator still today in most countries as to whether or not somebody's going to be religious is whether their parents were. What about urbanization? I mean, it's very striking that people who've traveled around the world, if you think of long established traders by sea, yeah, people who've been doing that for generations, those communities in Saudi Arabia, in East Africa, are definitely more, in my, my observation, are more tolerant. The, 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 the people who've seen other people perform their religious you know, rituals and so on and realise that there is another way of looking at all this and that people have different beliefs and so on, those communities tend to have a greater tolerance, it seems to me, than, than others. So how big a factor is you know, urbanisation, travel, and see, being living close up to lots of other people rather than being in a very tight-knit rural community where everyone agrees with each other? 
Yeah, that's a, it's, it's another really good question. So we don't tackle that as much in this book. Other scholars have certainly looked at this, and it does appear to be the case that people who live in more urban environments are less likely to be religious, so they're more secular. That that does tend to be true. The differences aren't as big as you might think, though, and I think part of that is the shrinking of the of the globe, right? That if you've got the internet and you've got TV and you've got all of these things that basically pe bring people together now, so you can see what's happening in real time anywhere around the world, yeah, that, that seems to be shifting the dynamic a little bit. Interestingly, I haven't seen any research, this is actually a great research project, on people who travel and whether that actually <clears throat> reduces religiosity. I just haven't seen any research on that. So that's actually a really good idea. Maybe I'll look into that. Okay. And just as we look ahead, I, mean, uh, I don't know what you think of this. You may, be, may, may think it's got no basis at all. Again, it's just my observation. That, that, that Do you think the current environmental movement has some religious qualities to it? Uh, and that, you know, the you, you talk when you define religion about supernatural belief, the earth is almost given a sort of supernatural status now and and that it's um the devotion with which people defend it and try and protect the environment and so on so, i don't know it seems to me it's got something religious about it do you think there's anything in that we do try and be very careful at least i do in a lot of my research and so do my two co-authors on this book and a lot of the people i work with we try to be very careful in drawing that distinction between what is religion and what is not religion so i, I get the point that you're making which is it, it looks very religion-like but increasingly in my scholarship, I'm trying to flip that around for people. We, because religion has been around and for so long and is so pervasive and is such a kind of, in, uh, kind of integral part of our culture and our society, we tend to think of religion as like fulfilling human needs as though religion predates humans. And it doesn't. Right. So we actually need to flip this around and say humans have needs and desires and goals and wishes. And religion actually did a really good job of fulfilling those for a long time. But religion is totally unnecessary to do that. So if we're looking at something like the environmental movement, the reason why it looks similar is because people are similarly passionate about this goal, this desire, and they may organize in similar ways to what was done with religion, but what that's actually reflecting is human desires, human needs, human behaviors, not those of religion. So I think it would actually be nice if we could get away from comparing everything to religion and just saying, oh, what human needs, desires, motivations does this movement fulfill, not how is this the same as religion? And, and what does that make sense? Um, well, I'm not, not totally convinced. I mean, it, it seems to me that, that religion does have some qualities, bringing people together, faith, in, in the case of the environmental movement, you know, the IPCC and the science of all that. I mean, because most of the people who you know, are extremely passionate about this aren't obviously familiar with the science. And, and they it's almost like the IPCC is, is now a, a sacred text that is driving people to be very censorious about others. There's a sort of Puritanism about it in line with some religious practice. I mean, it, it, it seems to me it's slightly more than just it's not yeah there's not quite enough just to say these are human needs and and you know how does this particular set of beliefs fill those needs there is something specific about religious practice which and some of that stuff is is apparent in the environmental movement it would seem to me 
Yeah, see, I, and I would, I would again flip that around and say what we're seeing is this is how humans behave, right? Humans want to have, we'll, we'll go with this, they want to have a sense of identity. Everybody wants to say, like, I belong to this group. This is who I am. And what you're seeing, I mean, we did this with religion for a long time, and of course it led to wars and violence and kind of conflict. But now as religion wanes, people still want to have an identity. They're just finding it in different places. So they're just as passionate about those identities. They're just not religious identities, right? So it may be tied to the environment. It may be tied to politics. It may be tied to, you know, some particular issue that they're really, really passionate about. And again, I think this says more about humans than it does about religions. This is how we as humans behave. What what about the the current trends towards spiritualism? Yeah, I, I give you an example. I, I live on an island off North Wales, and about a mile away, there's a burial chamber which dates back to 2500 BC. And I've, I've been walk, walking there all my life, really. And but about 20 years ago, people started putting offerings there flowers, petals, various bits and pieces, which people would leave on this grave. And it's become more and more sort of common every time I go now that someone has left something there. And I'm wondering what that's about and, and whether this is obviously a very disorganised religion. It's nothing like the, the, the Church of England or, or, or any sort of formal religious practice. But how, how, how much of a trend is that? And, how, and what's its significance, do you think? Yeah, another really good question. So I do want to to reference a book by Steve Bruce. I don't know if you're familiar with Steve Bruce. Is the, um, I think he's just retired from the University of Aberdeen, but he's one of the leading scholars on secularization who published a book on this very topic just in the last uh, six, seven years called, I, I think I'm going to get this right because it's a really difficult title, but it's The Westernization of the Easternization of the West, which is like a terrible title. But basically what he's getting at is that a lot of people want to believe that as religion wanes, something will come up to replace it, right? And part of that might be spirituality. So what he looks at in the UK, so he's only looking at the UK, uh, and we can talk about the rest of the world here in a second, but in the UK, he's like, okay, how many people are into, say, yoga or meditation for spiritual reasons? How many people are into tarot cards or other kind of these new agey spiritual things, right? Or even identify as spiritual. And what he says is, uh, and his data are pretty compelling. There is a little bit of growth in this, but it's not even close to offsetting the people who are just leaving religion and leaving all religion and spirituality com combined. So yeah, there is a little bit of interest in this. And I, I think to get to the bigger question, which is like, why are people turning to this? Same. I think people really do have this sense of desire for purpose. Not everybody. I think a lot of people have a, a sense of desire for identity and meaning and purpose and connection. And I think a lot of that spirituality is actually tied to connection. They feel a connection with ancestors, with the people who used to live here, the people who were on the land, uh, with history. And they're trying to build that sense of connection so they don't feel lonely and isolated in this very complex modern world that can be rather cold at times. So they're turning to things like spirituality. Yeah. And when you put all this together, do you think this trend that you've identified of increasing secularization is reversible? You know, that, that yeah, for instance, the, if that theory is correct, that the amount of security you feel in your life is is part of the reason to drop religion. Yeah, if if if, if the West, if the Western decline that we all expect, uh, you know, is, is sharp and rapid and, and frightening, that people may turn back to religion. Yeah, 
again, great question. We we do address this in the book, and we say absolutely right. If the if secularization is contingent upon those two criteria that you've got freedom of or from religion and you've got modernization. If there was a reversal on either of those, you would absolutely you could see a reversal. Okay, if those two conditions don't change though, right? So if we still have highly developed modern countries with the freedom to make those decisions, our argument would be that it's really hard to change or reverse secularization because once you kind of go secular, you don't go back unless those underlying conditions change. So we could theoretically, we haven't seen one, we're open to this, right? But theoretically, if we saw some country just dramatically see a reversal in the level of modernization, you know, there's a nuclear bombs go off or something and it just destroys all of so this is some apocalyptic future it's absolutely plausible that religion would come back in an apocalyptic future well thank you very much for talking us through a very interesting book and a very interesting discussion so th thanks very much indeed my pleasure thanks for having me